Okay, so today we are going to go through Griset. We've had two lectures on Janet Smith and contraception. Um, obviously, as you'd have picked up, I don't rank Griset as highly to devote as much time to him. I've read all your assignments on him. Um, you've all grasped the basic um, outline of his thoughts, at least. Um, so, Hopefully this is just making sure we're putting it together in a, a comprehensive package. I've also tried on these notes here to break down the style of his argumentation. Um, so we can kind of look and discuss that together as well um, as a style, as a method. Um, and a number of you didn't pick up his anti-marriage argument. So that he has these two different arguments, anti-life, and I did, I realized afterwards, I gave you that McCarthy book to help you um, understand Griset and Smith, but actually Griset, uh, McCarthy's book doesn't mention the anti-marriage argument at all. So it's understandable that you therefore reading Griset should have not looked for it. But it's an argument he developed later in life um, so we'll touch on that as well. Um, so you'd have picked up the different names for his approach, um, the nat new natural law. So he was claiming it's a new system. He started his life or started his academic work claiming it was actually what St. Thomas articulated, claiming that this was an authentic interpretation of St. Thomas. I think John Finnis still argues that, but Griset himself, by the end of his life, um, said, no longer claimed it was what St. Thomas claimed, but just claimed that it was a better system. Um, which, you know, he's allowed to say. Um, I'd, like to be, I'd like to be generous there, saying he's allowed to disagree with St. Thomas. Um, <laughs> okay, but it's also called, um, the basic human goods school, because it's all about these human goods. Um, MacArthur uses those initials, GBFM. I think I've seen that much more rarely as a way of describing the school, but you do see that sometimes. So what have I said to you? I've said Griset and his school were the prime, if not the only, defenders of the church's teaching on contraception from 1968 when Humanity came out until the 1990s. So I made that observation when we looked at Smith, that until she, Christopher West, you know, there's a whole changing of the scene in the 1990s. But until then, it was pretty much Griset or heresy. You know, that this, was, this was the option. Um, listed there his principal followers. Um, so, like, although his book says Germaine Griset, when you look inside, it lists all those co-authors. Um, and those co-authors were a mixture of adherents. So Basil Cole taught me the Dominican House in Washington, D.C. He did contribute and help structure, I think he did a lot of the really uh, unexciting work on footnotes and stuff. Um, which is very thorough in there, if you've read and looked. 
but Basil Cole wasn't a complete disciple of this school of thought. So he had a, a lot of people involved. Um, and then also, as I list there, critics. So two types of critics. The traditional Thomists, like Janet Smith. And then those that were his kind of early critics, the proportionalists. Those who dissented from the church's teaching, those who had their own system. So you were taught by McMahon. Okay, so I'm sure he talked a lot about proportionalist study. Yeah. Okay, right, so. Um, yeah, so I've not mentioned them really all course, have I? Just. Okay. So halfway down that page there, I refer to the anti-naturalist label. So McCarthy uses this terminology. Um, I don't think I've ever seen Griset himself use that as a label, but I think it is a pretty good description of him. Um, so traditional Thomists derive moral arguments from knowledge of nature, so they're naturalist, whereas GBFM except Hume's premise, you can't derive an art from an is. Um, you can't start from nature and figure out what ought to be the case. In philosophy, you'd have done the distinction between practical reason and speculative reason. Yes, no. So speculative reason, two plus two makes four. That is not practical. You can apply it, but in itself, it isn't practical. In itself, it's what's called speculative reason. Whereas reason about how to behave, that's practical reason. Um, and Griset's claim is that these two things are epistemologically unrelated. You can know practical reason without knowing speculative reason. You don't deduce speculative reason, uh, practical reason from speculative So he'd start with, um, well, let's turn over the page and I'll go through. So I've tried to systematize his entire thought in five points in terms of the structure of his thinking. Um, and I think I'm being faithful to him here. Um, so page two. So his first thing, that there are eight what he calls self-evident basic human goods. Um, and because they're self-evident, they don't rely on is-ought argumentation. You just see them, they're self-evident. He says the first precept of practical reason, the one that all the others build on, is good is to be pursued and its opposite is to be avoided. Now, St. Thomas said good is to be done and pursued. Whereas Griset's twisted that already slightly. He said good is to be pursued. So he's I would say, redefined good there. Um, okay, I've, I've listed the eight self-evident goods Griset identifies. Um, I'm guessing you read all that when you were doing, doing the research. Um, some of them are more, to my way of thinking, more obvious than others. I kind of think I can recognize marriage some of these things like harmony among one's judgments, choices, actions, and peace of conscience. 
for me to recognize that as a good that is self-evident and can never be violated, I'm just not sure I get that really. And you know, self-evident, it's got to be obvious. If it's not obvious to you, it's not self-evident. Um, but anyway, that's his system, that there are these eight self-evident goods. And of course, the critics would point out these eight self-evident goods weren't self-evident even to him, because two decades in, he adds the good of marriage, which wasn't on the original list. Um, So there he says, morality concerns how those goods are to be pursued, which is what the other points are going to specify. So the goods themselves are self-evident. You can see it. Harmony obviously is good. Um, everyone wants harmony um, and so forth. But how are you going to get that? The mechanism, how you make choices, that's his structure. So second point on my list there. A good will. A good will seeks this thing he calls integral human fulfillment, i.e. all of the goods. You don't seek one against the other, you seek all of them, integral human fulfillment. Never seeks one good in opposition to another good. I mean, an action can never be opposed to a basic human good. And that's a key part of his whole approach to morale. So I pursue harmony, I pursue marriage, I want inner peace. Well, I can't oppose marriage in order to give me inner peace. So what's going to give me peace this afternoon is just a little bit of adultery. Um, so that, that I'll feel at peace if I have a little bit of adultery. Well, that would be against the good of marriage. Um, so you're saying integral human fulfillment. That's what you've got to be pursuing. Third point, knowing the natural law, what is it? It consists of applying practical reason to pursue the goods in such a way as to not act against other goods. Um, I note the word choice, that this involves careful identification of what one is choosing in an action. I think you all picked this up in your assignments. So for him, identifying the choice, what are you choosing? That's the key of his analysis. And how do you do that? Well, he has these eight, what he calls, modes of responsibility that structure choices. He says, these pin down the primary moral principle by identifying Identifying six specific ways of choosing not compatible with a will to integral human fulfillment. Incoming transmission. Oh, who is incoming transmission? Okay. Um, these are the eight modes of responsibility. Put briefly, they, the modes of responsibility, and here, yes, I'm quoting William May, who's a follower of his, but not Grisey himself. Put briefly, the modes of responsibility exclude ways of choosing and willing whereby one would intentionally ignore, slight, neglect, damage, destroy or impede real goods of human persons or act in ways based on purely, purely on non-rational feelings 
or in ways that unfairly or arbitrarily limit participation by human persons in these goods. Exclude ways of choosing. So if you studied Grusier directly, I'm sure you went through these. Um, I've listed on what I called an appendix, what those modes of responsibility are. When we look at some of these specific arguments, I'm gonna highlight some examples of those. Um, so, eight self-evident goods, choosing them integrally, never one against another, modes of responsibility that specify how you make these choices. Point five on page three. He says norms. So this is a big thing in him against the proportionalists. Norms can specify acts by their object of moral choice. So specific moral norms can be deduced using the previous four points on page two of my notes there. Um, norms identify kinds of human acts, acts specified by their object of moral choice. Yeah, you remember when you studied the sources of morality, the object is one of the three sources of morality, object, intention, circumstances. Mm -hmm. The object of moral choice. And these are either going to be acts either reasonable, all things considered, and not merely relative to a particular purpose, or unreasonable, all things considered. That is, between specific alternatives of choice that are morally good or morally bad. So in his system, some norms would have exceptions and some norms would be exceptionless. The object of the act is defined in terms of choice. So that, as I've said already, choice is the pivotal concept of Grisey's analysis. The action of an individual is defined by the proposal adopted by a choice, just as the action of a group is defined by the motion adopted by a vote. So if you look at him with respect to proportionalism, that's where all of his stuff on intrinsic evil acts, um, that's how he defends the tradition in this regard. So that's kind of in a page and a half summarizing his system. Does that sound consistent with what you researched or studied? It is a very technical system. I'm not a disciple of his, so I'm, there's always the risk I am not being authentic in summarizing it, but I think I think that's it. So let's look, the rest of the time I've given us is to look at examples of what, how does that work in a specific application. So page four. So examples, a moral action makes a choice that does not involve opposition to any of the eight basic human goods. 
that Scusier's analysis typically comes down to what he identifies as the choice. What do you choose? How do you define that choice? I, I say he rejects any analysis based on the physical structure of the act. And in this he rejects both proportionalists, who define an object as a physical event, and traditional Thomists who draw on what he calls biologism. So first example, a nice kind of easy example of his system, an anti-life choice, intentional killing. So intentional killing. You know, I've had enough of the raptor and these COVID restrictions. I intentionally set out to kill him. But what is that? It's to will death as an end or a means. Direct killing. So that's pretty obvious. There's the good of life and you're against it. Whereas you'd say, in contrast, if you foresee death, that doesn't necessarily mean you intend it. Um, and accepting death as a side effect doesn't necessarily imply intending it. So I wouldn't normally talk about killing somebody as being wrong because it violates the basic human good of life. But if we phrase it that way, we're using structure. But my choosing, I'm choosing against that basic human good. Okay, abortion. So similarly, an anti-life choice. He says, in principle, the morality of killing the unborn is the same as that of killing people already born. Either choice is death is contrary to the basic human good of life. You know, it's abortion in the case of rape. Well, there, he says, death wouldn't be intended per se. Death is simply the foreseen side effect of ending the woman's experience of rape. But such a death violates the fifth mode of responsibility, namely fairness fairness on the unborn child, and thus the act, he says, is wrong on those grounds. So considered as a human act, abortion is the deliberate ending of pregnancy before the unborn can survive, or later, by a method chosen with the intention that the unborn not survive. So structurally, I'm adding another bit of the analysis here, the significance of a, a mode of responsibility, fairness in this case. Fatally shooting, shooting a would-be rapist. So your end here, someone's coming at you to rape you. You shoot them, fatally. Well, the end is to avoid being raped. And the means, he says, to prevent the would-be rapist from carrying out the behavior that would constitute rape. So he's defining choice here as preventing rape. So the death of the attacker isn't chosen as means. The choice isn't death per se. The choice is not anti-life. And he'd say in this case, the fifth mode of responsibility, namely fairness, 
evaluates the bodily integrity of the woman under threat and the life of the would-be rapist and judges that fair. Yeah. So with that example, he uh, is saying it would be permissible to kill the rapist because like one of the things I remember Monsignor McMahon teaching us is that he, he had said it's never justifiable to take another person's life no matter what. Like he was even famous for saying you could break into my house and kill my entire family and I would do nothing to stop you. I don't know, I've just taken that from his book, so. Um, I thought Monsignor said that was Grisey's personal pacifism, that it wasn't part of his system necessarily. Okay, maybe it was, I don't know. But I do remember him saying that. Yeah, I think he said that was Grisey's own personal application. I don't know, peace is a voter responsibility, but something like that. But didn't necessarily say it was part of his system. Right. Because Grisey actually, one of his big books, well I say big books, big books that way but not very often read, was against nuclear deterrence. So that would kind of be consistent with that trajectory of his priorities to have written on that and have that as an attitude. So this example of the rapist, just to make the point, this is kind of utterly consistent with the tradition in terms of priorities here, that bodily integrity, rape, this is very serious in the Christian tradition. Somebody can use lethal force to defend themselves. It's, a, it's not life, oh, but it's only your sexual integrity. No, sexual integrity is a really precious thing, and you can use lethal force to defend yourself. And as he's defining it, Lethal force, you're not choosing death per se, you're choosing preventing rape. And this fifth mode of responsibility, fairness, makes it legitimate. I still find it a bit weird to be that precisely structured around the analysis of choice. Anyway, that, that is his system. Any comments before? Yeah. Yeah, the aspect of proposal. Uh, of what, sorry? The proposal. Proposal. Yeah, I mean, from stage. Stage three. The action of what is being defined by the proposal adopted by choice. Okay, right. So is he, is he suggest that one considers proposal about the eight modes of choosing, or is there another shorter way of getting the whole proposal that feeds into the choice? I think what he means by proposal is simply, I propose to stop myself being raped. Um, so I don't think proposal is another technical term. I think it's just kind of describing what's meant by choice. Whereas choice is a word he puts a lot of attention on. I don't think proposal is. 
Okay, let's see how he applies this with contraception, because that's the context we're thinking of in our course on sexual morality. So page five. And we might note, before looking at the detail, I think this is, this is a beautifully simple presentation. The question is whether it's actually right. <laughs> um, but it does have a beautiful simplicity to it. So you, I can see the appeal to it on one level. So A, contraception, he says, is an anti-life choice. So he says, sexual intercourse is a generative and unitive kind of act. He says, contraceptive sexual intercourse, in contrast, chooses to exclude life, that a contraceptive genital act is an anti-life kind of act. So he's defining it in terms of intention. And I note here, if we compare this with Immanuel Kant's morality, you know, Kant was all about intention and goodwill. He said, the only good thing is a goodwill that's good without qualification. That Kant was all about intention, all about the will. And so Griset, you know, I think it, he does feel Kantian that way. Okay, then I've got a little block quote. Contraception can always be carried out by a variety of methods. An outward behavior similar to that involved in contraception sometimes has an entirely different moral significance. So, Contraception must be understood accurately in terms of intention involved. That intention is to impede a new instantiation of the good of human life. Therefore, he says, contraception is always contra-life. A contraception acts against the basic good of human life. That's why it's immoral. So note, however, Griseta's often referred to the physical structure of the body and the act. Um, so, for example, I quote him there, sexual intercourse is open to new life when a couple do not intend to impede conception, and their performance is such that conception would result if the physiological conditions were conducive to it. Um, so, you know, we talk about how Griset talks a lot about biological analysis of what's going on. Well, Griset does refer to it as well. But he doesn't seem to argue that is the structure of his choosing. Now, to go back to the block quote there, contraception of a variety of methods. So, let's think what he's trying to say here. A woman can take the contraceptive pill, but she can take it for a number of reasons. So, because the pill is a big thing in what's out there in our pharmacies, doctors will give it as a remedy for many other things. So if a woman has irregular cycles, if she has heavy bleeding, if she has prolonged cramps, one of the solutions is to put her on the pill and that that will smooth over that. Um, now that would be to take the pill for a non-contraceptive reason. So is saying there are lots of things you can do for a non-contraceptive reason. 
So it's not just the physical thing that describes whether it's a contraceptive, he says. It's the intention. Now, Smith would say, in contrast, well, yes and no. That there are some things that actually, yes, you can have an, a non-contraceptive intention, but the structure of the act might still be wrong because of what it's doing is contraceptive. So if you take, so the, the common um, contraceptive pill now usually has a, a dual purpose. It both prevents ovulation, but will also prevent implantation afterwards. So it will be an abortive patient if it fails to be a contraceptive. It's got this dual purpose built into it. So a woman who takes the pill to regulate her cramps and such isn't taking it for a contraceptive reason, but it is going to have this abortifacient effect as well, which in terms of fairness wouldn't be fair to an embryo conceived that way. Okay, but Griget's approach, all about intention. What's being intended? He says that's what defines the action. Now, I put a little quote here, open to new life, question mark. Yeah, so I spent a while when describing Smith's line of approach. Um, she takes issue with this translation um, I showed you the Latin. The Latin very obviously is not saying open, even if you're going to claim that's an in acceptable interpretation, but it certainly isn't the literal word. Griset does interpret it as meaning open. So I say, Griset, in contrast to Janet Smith, speaks repeatedly of sex being open to new life. His entire argument that contraception involves an anti-life will <coughs> only really makes sense with this subjective sense of open. This, as noted in our previous lecture, doesn't seem <coughs> a necessary or fully appropriate reading of the Latin per se destinatus. That would be my observation. And I would guess I've not tried to historically analyse texts but I would guess Griset is part of the reason that this open translation was in circulation up until the Janet Smith query is in the 90s. Comments so far? Okay, let's look with that how he defines natural family planning. So he says, in contrast, he says natural family planning isn't contra life. So, quoting, summarizing his analysis here. Avoiding conception by abstinence, i.e. in the different days of the month, need not be contraceptive. He says, what is a couple choosing by abstaining? 
It says, their choice is to refrain from intercourse in as much as it might cause a state of affairs which would include not only a baby's coming to be, but other things which they think it reasonable and perhaps obligatory to avoid, namely pregnancy. Uh, no, sorry. So baby coming to be, that's the pregnancy. The other things would be the financial burden that comes with the pregnancy, um, health issues with the pregnancy, uh, whatever else that comes with a child. So they're not, it's not whether they're choosing a child, but choosing what will end up coming along with the child. Yes, so therefore it's not necessarily anti-life, it's anti the complications that are come, going to come with a new child. And he says, if the second half of the condition above is not present, namely there are no other things which they think it reasonable and perhaps obligatory to avoid, then the abstinence would have a contraceptive intent. It would be solely a choice against a baby's coming to be. So he says, in periodic abstinence, they abstain from fertile times in order not to cause pregnancy. However, their intention does not preclude intercourse during the times they identify as infertile. And if they choose to have normal marital intercourse at those times of infertility, their intention is doing so plainly, plainly cannot be to impede the beginning of a new life, since the infertility is due to natural conditions, not to their marital intercourse. Which is pretty much saying the same thing that we looked at Janet Smith saying, that your having sex on an infertile day hasn't been changed by your abstaining on a fertile day. Does his analysis of will and choice seem convincing, accurate? I was talking to a certain professor here who was saying he thought Griset was talking rubbish here. Um, and that he says, a couple, you are thinking, no, my intention is not to have a child. That is my intention. Um, now, and, according to Humanity, there are times when it's appropriate to intend not to have a child. Which I think is accurate. But, Humanity would also say there are grounds when it would be wrong to intend not to have a child. As we've discussed, if you entered into marriage intending never to have a child, or when the conditions are appropriate and you intend not to have a child, that would be wrong. Griset has hinged everything on intention and in a very precise structuring of the act. that no one in the tradition before him has done. You know, these eight modes of responsibility didn't exist until he identified them 
it seems like the couple that you that the objector you're talking about is their intention precisely I don't want to have a baby or is it this other thing I don't want to have a baby because of all of these reasons the things that come with them like those seems that seems to be just a different way of phrasing just reasons because it doesn't seem like in either case we, we would hope in either case they're not saying you know it's not a, like a hatred for children or something like that it's for these just causes or serious reasons or defensible reasons just that language is being talked about in two different ways it seems to me so you're convinced by that description mm -hmm. I would say I would say I'm convinced by that description too just because and we didn't go into this in a lot of detail with Monsignor McMahon because mm -hmm. you know that was a fundamental moral class, but we did touch on it, and what, if I remember correctly, what he was saying, kind of for Zay's point, is, is the church's default position is you should be open to as many children as, as God sends you, and it's kind of like, something like periodic abstinence or NFP, that's a morally permissible thing to do only if you have a very specific reason to do it. In other words, it shouldn't be the default that every couple does until they decide they want to have a child. That was kind of my understanding of it. Yeah. And I suppose my only reservation is that also seems to be a description in both schools of thought. Um, So I was having a discussion with Dr. Carhill whether whether I should be presenting both schools of thought to you or whether I should somehow kind of merge them all together um, and present a unified whole, which Grisey, I think, would object to. Because um, Grisey is trying to say he's created a new system here that isn't dependent on the body. If, if the couple were intending not to have a child in the sense Grisey is saying, you, you're right, that just wouldn't be right to be mm -hmm. anti-children as children. Yeah. It has to be anti-children because of what comes with another child. Because that, if they were anti-children, then they would be using NFP in a contraceptive way. Right, right. right. In which case it wouldn't be more and you might even say that as a celibate priest, I shouldn't be anti-children um, in, in that kind of way. Yeah, the, yeah, the, the grumpy old bachelor can be anti-children. Oh, sure. Um, yeah. Keeps all the baseballs that have gone over his fence in his basement or something like that. <laughs> Okay, let's look at um, his anti-marriage argument, contra-marriage argument. So this is page seven. 
So as I said earlier, this is only in his later writings. So this isn't in volume one's approach, but it does appear in both volume two and volume three. And he doesn't say this is a whole new argument, but he does say there is a second reason. Um, so, and commentators on him, friendly commentators on him, refer to him as having developed a second argument. Um, so I, I don't think I'm reading into him and in saying this. Um, okay, page seven. Um, the contraception is contra marriage. So, marriage is a basic human good. It is intelligible and intrinsically good. Marriage is, as Griset describes, a fundamental life choice that constitutes the very person who has chosen it. Now, I've not detailed this, but this is a big thing for Griset. There are some choices that constitute you as a person and therefore structure what is appropriate for you in your other choices. You could think your, your choice to accept your priestly vocation, being ordained, there will be some things that would be sinful for me that wouldn't be sinful for a normal person, yeah? Um, marriage, a fundamental life choice that has constituted the very person who has chosen. Marriage thus becomes for him or her an existential good. So some of the goods Griset has are existential. A good that is part of his very existence, not merely a good extrinsic to himself. And he says that the contraception damages or impedes this good of marriage. And how does it do that? By opposing an aspect of that good of marriage namely its openness to procreation. Have you in any other courses referred to marriage as a single good? So this is a big thing in Griset's analysis. We talked about when we looked at the ends of marriage, how there is this hierarchy that gets ranked differently in different bits of the tradition, but it's pretty unanimous that there is an attempt to list and rank and prioritize procreation, union, remedy for concupiscence. Um, Griset says in contrast, no, marriage is a single good. And so for him, humanity is talking about an inseparable procreative and unitive meaning, inseparable in a single good of marriage. So as I've said there, without a hierarchy of ends, but inseparably, including both unity and procreative dimensions. Authentic marital intercourse is an act by which the couple become one flesh and experience themselves as becoming one flesh. And this is therefore necessarily a reproductive type act because only reproductive type acts make a couple one flesh. That's quite a, I think, specific argument he's making there. And I don't disagree with him on that point. But to me, it feels a very physical argument. It feels to me like he has actually gone from is to ought here. That he's said, 
this physical union is a reproductive type of act that constitutes marriage, that makes them one flesh. Okay, my next little section. He says, a sexual act can, as he puts it, fail to be a marital act. So it kind of looks like a marital act in some aspects, but it fails to be a marital act. If a sexual act is not marital, it violates the good of marriage. The marital act must retain organic complementarity in respect to reproduction. Contraceptive sex thus fails to be a marital act. So we might say there are lots of um, sexual acts, um, masturbation, um, sexual relations. Um, any sexual act that isn't a marital act is against the good of marriage. That's how he's structured the argument. Because that's what sex is supposed to be about. Okay, block quote here. Inasmuch as a sexual act involving complete satisfaction is not marital intercourse, it is wrong. It violates the sixth mode of responsibility because by diverting the couple's sexual behaviour and experience from the good of marriage and its integrity, it damages that good and substitutes a merely apparent good. Some of the psychological satisfactions or sentient pleasures pertaining to marital sex, isolated from its wholeness. If such an act is chosen with the intent to impede new life, it is also contraceptive. And so it's wrong because it violates the seventh or eighth mode of responsibility namely being anti-life. And then I've listed the sixth, seventh, and eighth modes of responsibility just to know where that goes there. So the sixth, so he's saying anti-marriage is anti-sixth mode. One should not choose on the basis of emotions which bear upon empirical aspects of intelligible goods or bads in a way which interferes with a more perfect sharing in the good or avoidance of the bad. Which I think is saying you shouldn't choose on the basis of emotions. Yes, I think that's what he's saying. Yeah. So I feel pleasure in sex. That shouldn't be why I'm choosing sex. I should be choosing the good of marriage. Is he indicating that that specific act 
think as he describes it, the kind of act. So he doesn't talk about nature in essence, he talks about the kind of the act, is a reproductive kind of act. And it still is a reproductive kind of act, even when it's on an infertile day. That, that's how he'd argue it. I kind of feel comfortable with that, but it feels to me like it's Janet Smith's style of argument, going from an is to an ought. Whereas if he's kind of hinged so much on, I'm not going to be rooted in the analysis of nature in what I deduce about moral principles and laws, that I think his system only really works if he's kind of abandoned that initial claim. Okay, so before moving on, what have we seen in his structure here? Um, we've got these goods. You can't, um, and you're analyzing your choice. You can never have an anti-good choice. Yeah, so if any choice you're making is against a good, it's going to be wrong. Sometimes you analyze whether that's the case by these eight modes of responsibility. One of which is fairness. Um, the other in this anti-marriage example is not choosing on the basis of emotions. Um, that is what he said, isn't it? Not choosing on emotions in a way which interferes with a more perfect sharing in the good. Okay, so you could choose on the basis of emotions if it doesn't oppose the good but that would somehow be a pointer to you a mode of responsibility to indicate whether the choice is anti-good that be sort of a rebuttal to joseph's point then if you're having engaging in intercourse on a non-fertile day you're you're not procreation is not being actualized but it's not something that you're choosing against. So the, the choosing for unity with the effect of pleasure isn't emotional. It's not choosing for emotions Again. then against anything. It's you're, you're following through the natural. Well, we can't say he's following through on the natural order of things. So that would be <laughs> part of his argument. But yeah. more perfect sharing that's being avoided. Yeah. So that yes, you're choosing on the basis of the emotions, but not in a way that avoids the perfect sharing in the goods. 
Now, I'm inclined to say this just feels overly technical to me. Um, I'd have to concede that when we looked at Janet Smith, there were bits of that analysis that also seemed very technical. So when you're wanting to give a philosophically rigorous analysis of anything, it does end up getting technical. Mm. Um, and that's probably true, you know, when we say homoousios versus homoousios, um, we get technical, <laughs> don't we? Um, but that doesn't mean actually it isn't important and it isn't worth worth punching Athanasius over. Mm-hmm. Any observations before moving along here? Okay, over the page. I'm not going to go through all of these because these others aren't all related to our course. Um, Masturbation. Um, So he describes this, what is it, as a sin, an anti-marriage choice. So spelling it out as he analyzes it. Sexual intercourse is a personal kind of act. So note again, he's hinging it on the kind of the act, a generative and unitive act. Masturbation chooses to actuate sexual power as a means to a conscious experience. Masturbation chooses to exclude the marriage good from the act. And masturbation is thus an anti-marriage kind of act. Now focusing ourselves on the structure of the argument, is that convincing? So on one level, the conscious experience, well, that's not a problem per se. It has to be this thing about choosing it in a way that fails to, let's get our wording right, interferes with a more perfect sharing in the good of marriage. So if I'm not married and I'm by myself, how does it interfere with the more perfect sharing of the good of marriage? Because I'm not partaking of marriage for life. just like his he uses the contra life argument against contraception you're not choosing against a life like murder you're choosing against a potential life yeah. he says so this maybe be choosing against a, in a way a potential marriage so that realm in which your sexuality is to be activated and you're choosing against that in this act of masturbation Well, actually, you convinced me. Um, (laughs) Oh, I mean, that was a great argument, yes. (laughs) I'm just thinking as you're saying that, whether he explained it as well as you did, but (laughs) I think think what you said is consistent with how he would... In the structure of that act, it is against marriage. Mm -hmm. 
as one of the basic human goods doesn't come into play. It, it's not that marriage doesn't come into play before you're married. Right. right. It should be a basic human good all the time. And actually, that's a good way of thinking of it as well. So that the young married person who, young unmarried person who is heading towards marriage has lots of acts that will have the potential to act for or against marriage. Yeah. yeah. You can act for the good of marriage both within it and without it, like you or I. Right, right. Yeah, no, that would be consistent with his, his analysis then. Um, let's not read the whole thing out loud. Footnote 36 is William May describing this. So this isn't Griset's own description, but I think is consistent with what Jacob just described. That is quite technical, what he's arguing there. The phrase alienates himself from his own body. Um, I kind of like that as a description. Um, that there's a seeking of a conscious experience that is alienating myself from an authentic meaning of my, my body. Again, it feels to me more like Smith's approach to arguing things on the structure of my body rather than Grisey's starting with a good that my will is engaging with um, as the point of reference. Okay, let's skip to page 10 now. Um, and just a few... So these are my kind of critical observations of his whole system here. So, <coughs> um, so I say first, it's very legalistic in style. So in practice, Griset's system feels very like Immanuel Kant. Namely, it is duty-based, not happiness-based. It leaves the Christian convinced about what he must do but does not leave him feeling content to do it. If you remember, Kant had more reason a priori purified of the a posteriori, purified of experience. 
purified of knowledge of nature, of the is, to derive the ought. Second, I'd say, linked with that, it doesn't connect man to morality, because Grise is divorced morality from human nature, from what the human is. I've not footnoted this. Um, I think this is Hissinger, um, who I think I've footnoted earlier, making this third point. So you know, this is technical. I'm not going to claim to be clever enough to figure this for myself. But the claim, it mis Griset misinterprets the nature of practical reason. That contrary to Griset's use, practical reason is speculative reason applied to action. A practical reason always includes a speculative dimension. For example, a good to pursue must be grasped speculatively before it can be pursued practically. For example, Griset must speculatively understand his goods before he can apply his analysis. So the good of marriage, that is an is, as I would see it. You have to understand it as an is before you can then do all your analysis of the will's engagement Whereas Griget's attempt to, to separate the is from the ought in the analysis, I just don't think works even on that level. Fourth point, I've not commented on this really earlier, but Griget has attempted to create a system that an atheist can follow without belief in God. Now that's kind of good, isn't it? But Natural law must include a belief in God as legislator, or else it's not law. And the notion of law is someone has commanded you to do it. Well, if there is no God, where does the obligation come from? And Griset just doesn't really address that in his system. He's tried to create a system that all good people can follow, even not knowing God. How does that work with the fifth? Basic human good. Go on. Fifth basic human good. So we are. Harmony with God or more than human source of meaning and value for religion. So, harmony with the more human source of meaning. Would, I, would an atheist acknowledge a more than human source of meaning or value for religion? <laughs> I, if you would, I would really. I don't think most atheists would acknowledge. The good of humanity? Maybe. That is what Griset's tried to do. Um, my point is more that if it's going to be a moral obligation, the obligation has to come from someone. And it's hard to see where that comes from if there isn't a divine legislator. Um, and actually, again, I said I say that. Um, I think some of the people I've footnoted, I've got that opinion from others. Again, I don't want to be accused of plagiarism here. Um, this is my, my thought. Um, okay. Fifth point, more obvious from a virtue analysis, Griset lacks any treatment of the final end, beatitudes and so forth, because he focuses primarily on law. 
and six, although he does give a side mention to virtue, he sees virtue as being in the service of law rather than law as being in the service of virtue. Now, whether you think that's a good or a bad thing um, depends on where you rank a virtue analysis, but for someone like myself who's committed to virtue as a model, it's rather bizarre the way it barely gets a mention. Okay, how are we going to summarize all this? So we've compared Smith and we've compared Grise. Tried to make the point to you, here we have two, in a sense, towering intellectual figures, both disagreeing on their methodology, but both embracing the same conclusion. What the church says, what the tradition says, what Christians have lived down the centuries. So, the ancient Romans, the ancient Greeks, they had contraception, they had abortion. It wasn't as effective as the pill, it wasn't as effective as the condom, um, but they had methodologies. The ethical question was there back then. Christians have always said contraception is not part of our way of engaging with the body, our way of engaging with life, our understanding of an authentic relationship between man and a woman. So even though Smith, Grise, both in their justification of the tradition, they both end up getting very technical. And as I was saying earlier, you know, any argument when you're trying to nail it down is going to get technical. But that doesn't mean it's wrong because it's technical. Actually, surely that you could say in reverse is a sign of it being academically grounded. but they both come to the same conclusion, that an authentic use of marriage has to have these two union, two meanings together, the, the unitive and the procreative, the procreative and the unitive. You can't attack either one without attacking the whole. Um, and they're both saying that's exactly what contraception ends up doing.